And so we're going to have the scripture up here on the screen. We're calling it Dear Church because these are the letters from Jesus to seven different churches. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I heard one teacher talk about it like this, that, that these are Jesus's epistles. You've heard of Paul's epistles, uh, letters that he wrote to churches that were canonized um, as, as the Holy Scripture. Well, these are the seven epistles of Christ. These are the seven letters that Jesus um, wrote to seven different churches. Uh, the, this, this, this is it. And Jesus, of course, his epistles are much shorter than Paul's, uh, much shorter than any of the other epistles. These letters to churches, though, are jam-packed with, with, with relative meaning for their lives in, in, in those days, 96 AD. But also, nearly 2,000 years later, they are applicable um, to us even today. And so I believe that, that, that Jesus is still speaking. Uh, does anybody believe that Jesus is still speaking to people today? I believe that he is, and I believe that it's important that we hear from him. I believe it's important that we hear what, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. Uh, over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, you, you might have ears, but they might not be open. They might not be able to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. I just pray today that everybody here, everybody watching online, that you have ears to hear you have ears to hear and eyes to see. Your ears will do you no good if you cannot hear the voice of God in your life. You might be able to hear wonderful music. You might be able to hear preaching, but you got to hear Jesus. You got to hear the voice of God much more than any preacher. So I just pray that God open up our ears, open up our eyes, and let us see what he's saying to us today. Revelation 3, verse 1 through 6, we're going to jump right in. Jesus says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, the word angel uh, really should be translated messenger or pastor, to the, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. That's a, this is positive, encouraging uh, letter from Jesus. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works to be perfect or complete before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father. Isn't it interesting? He starts off the letter by saying, I know that you have a name. In other words, you have a name among people. You have a name among your relatives, among folks in the city. People know your name. He said, but if you... If, if, if you can overcome, if you can take the next step, I will not blot out your name from the book of life. It's one thing to have a name down here, but it's totally another thing to have a name written in heaven. It's much more important <laughs> that you have a name written in heaven. And apparently, according to this scripture, you can have a name written in heaven, and yet Jesus has a type of eraser <laughs> that can blot that out. I don't know how your doctrine falls in that, but I'm just, I'm just pointing out, Jesus said they're in danger of losing their name in heaven, not on earth. Folks still think they're alive on earth. Folks, they still have a reputation on earth. But Jesus says you're in danger of having your name blotted out in heaven. I'm going to blot your name. But if you overcome, I will not blot out your name. 
but I will confess your name. A lot about their name. Before my father and before his angels. Uh, when I, when I have to confess, when I first read this, this letter from Jesus to the church in Sardis, I was not looking forward uh, to preaching this to you. This is not... I'm just trying to find something positive, you know what I'm saying? Trying to find something to encourage people. And yet I read this letter, there's not a whole lot of encouragement. Uh, he basically starts off the letter, he says, I know you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. And, and I was talking to Ro about this and she said, well, you know, what about the original language? Like does the original word maybe dead mean something a little different in the Greek? I said, no, it just means dead, like dead. Dead, dead, like flatlined, like take him to the morgue. He's dead. There's a, no life, lifeless, other types of adjectives. Like there are other descriptions, but dead is dead. In the Greek and in the English, dead simply means not breathing, not living, not conscious, dead. And this is the letter. Jesus is writing to a church and right off the bat he says, I know you think that you're alive. I know that you've convinced other people that you're alive, but actually you are dead. And, and it just kind of got me thinking, and maybe, maybe, maybe some of you did not grow up in the church, but I grew up in the church, so you have to bear with me today, um, because, because I grew up in the church, and so, and so for those of us that grew up in the church, we all got different definitions of what a dead church was. I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've heard lots about dead churches. Anybody ever heard a sermon about a dead church? Yeah, there's dead churches out there. And uh, I mean, I mean, and it changes throughout my life. I'm 36 years old. My parents got saved six months before I was born. And um, their friends who, who brought them to the Lord, invited them to church, their friends were going uh, to, to a church in our tiny town of Port Huron, Michigan. Their friends were going to a church called Life of Faith Fellowship. Okay, so Life of Faith Fellowship. Our logo um, was, a, was, was a big shield, right? Shield of faith. I mean, they were all about faith. You talk about faith. We were, we were having faith in, faith in faith, right? We were having faith in Jesus, and we were having faith in all. I mean, it was all about faith. It was a part of, in the early 80s, what was known as the Word of Faith movement. So there were a lot of good things about the Word of Faith movement, a lot of good teachers. We were, we were, we were constantly listening to uh, Kenneth Copeland, uh, Marilyn Hickey. I always thought that was an awful last name, but, uh, you know, uh, 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 what's his name with PTL? Uh, Jim Baker, he ended up going to jail, um, but he's out now. Um, <laughs> I ran into him in the airport, actually. Uh, uh, you know, but it was, it was an interesting time. For the first 10 years of my life, I was a part of Life of Faith Fellowship, and I don't really remember if Pastor Cletus Snellenberger ever actually preached on Revelation 3, 1 through 6, but if he would have, I know what he would have said. He would have said, Jesus said that you are dead. That means that you don't say amen when the pastor says something good. And about 50 people would have shouted, amen. You know what I'm saying? Because to us at that point, a dead church was the ones where people are really quiet. Right? God's frozen chosen. God's, you know, they open to him number 255 and amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And then you sit down and you're a dead church because you're quiet. And I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Personally, I'm not really into really quiet stuff. I mean, that doesn't really excite me or wake me up in the morning. Um, so I can sort of understand. But, but from the age of 1 to 10, if you would have asked me what a dead church was, I would have said, well, a dead church is somebody who doesn't, you know, a church that doesn't, like, it's not alive, right? It's not moving. It's not loud. I mean, we were singing. We were singing, I went to the enemy's camp, and I took back what he stole from me. I took back. And my mom was on the dance team, the ladies' dance. She was, she was a 
flag lady. You know what I'm saying? Like she come down to the front. She'd be, I went to the enemies. I mean, I don't know why we're going to the enemies camp, but for some reason it was a good idea in the eighties. You know what I'm saying? Like we had, we had microphone, co like foam covers, red, yellow, blue, green. You know what I'm saying? Plexiglass pulpits. I mean, it was all about, we had, we had, we had, we had flags from other nations. We didn't go to those nations. We just have flags. And, and, and a dead church, oh, that's, 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 that's the church down the street. They just sing out of a hymn. No, they don't, they don't go to the enemy's camp. They don't have drums. They just, you know, that would have been a definition of a dead church. And it's interesting because, you know, uh, right around age 10, Pastor Cletus Snellenberger moved to Indiana. And so we left that church and we helped start another church in our small town with Pastor Rusty Lavender. This church was called Community Bible Fellowship. And I say Bible fellowship because the emphasis was not on the community. It was on the Bible. <laughs> it really wasn't on the community. It was on the Bible. But man, we emphasize the Bible. And honestly, much of who I am today, people, pe people say, oh, I just love your, I love your teaching because it, it's deeper. You go a little bit deeper. That's because I grew up in community Bible fellowship. Like we were all about the Bible. And I mean, I mean, the original language, I mean, the Bible. And so we, we were a part of that church for 12 years. And, and I don't really remember if Pastor Rusty Lavender ever preached on, you know, Revelation 3, 1 through 6. But if he would have, I'm pretty sure he would have said something like this. You know, Jesus said they're a dead church, which means they don't really care much about the Bible. They don't really care much about the truth. They're just driven by emotion. They're just driven by, by hearsay. They're a compromising church, right? Like they bring, they bring, they bring coffee into the sanctuary and, and uh, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're they're not, they're not really in love with, with, with the real gospel, with the truth. That would have been a dead church if you would have asked me during that time. Oh, a dead church. Those are those compromising churches, you know. Those churches that wear ripped jeans up there on the, on the platform. And, and they're, just, they're just on a slippery slope, you know what I'm saying? Because the people in there, the singers aren't, you know, the, some, of, like, some of the band members aren't even, aren't, aren't even living all right and everything. And everybody's in. And, and, and yeah, that's, that's, that's a dead church. Uh, I went from there to Bible college. And um, I was a part for the first time of a denomination. Never been a part of a denomination before or since. But my Bible college was a denomination called Churches of Christ and Christian Union. Try saying that three times real fast. Churches, 3CU for short. And 3CU folks, they had their own definition of a dead church. Uh, I, I, I don't really remember uh, if they ever preached on Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. But, 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 but one time I was asking some friends of mine, I was saying, hey, how about we go to this church up here in Columbus, Ohio, because it's a great church. I love it. And they said, oh, we can't go to that church. I said, well, why not? They said, because they speak in tongues there. I said, well, you know, I know that you don't really believe it's for today, but I mean, hey, it's all good, right? And they said, no, 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 no. Like, 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 like that's not of God. Like, that's demonic. I said, demonic? What? And yeah, that's demonic. And, and, and we don't want to be around that because if they speak in tongues around us, like the demon could jump on us and we could start speaking in tongues. <laughs> I said, that is true. You might start speaking in tongues and that would do you some good. But I'm just, it's not like, it's not, that's not even how the demonic works. Like, do you know? But they were afraid to go. Like, I don't really, they, they actually asked me to lead worship one time in the chapel and I had everybody jumping, you know, because we were all doing like the late 90s, uh, uh, the happy song. I could sing unending songs. And so I was, I mean, the whole chapel's jumping except the president, Doc Conley. He's down there in the front just looking at me like this. And the next day he calls me into his office and he says, Harry, I always like,
write you, son. And I, I thought that kind of started like the beginning of a eulogy. And uh, it certainly did. And I, so I left the office and I said, man, I'm sorry. I just can't leave worship for you guys anymore. Obviously, we don't agree with the way things should go. And, and if they would have, if Doc Conley would have preached about a dead church, he would have talked about a church that was hung up on emotionalism. He would have talked about a church that was, well, they just, they, 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 they just run the aisle just, 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 just because they want to feel good. But they don't really know the gospel. And, and that would have been his definition. It's interesting throughout my life. I've, 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 I've seen all these things. Then I went and traveled with Tommy Tenney around the world. About I visited and worked with about 500 different churches uh, on just about every continent of the earth. And it was, it, was, it was mind-blowing to me because I saw churches that were different from me. We went to one church that was on the south, south, southeast side of Chicago. It was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a charismatic Catholic church. I've never been to a charismatic Catholic church. It, it was crazy. Like, like I'm sort of used to some crazy, but it was, it was off the chain. Father Flanagan, I'll never forget Father Flanagan. He's dancing around the altar of sacraments, you know, like during worship. And I'm like, I think I kind of want to be a charismatic Catholic. I sort of like this. Like, this is, this is kind of cool. And, I mean, it just blew my mind. Charismatic Catholic? What are you talking about? And I, then, well, I was a part of another church, actually, in, in uh, the West Coast, uh, some little island off of Florida. And we, and, and we go there. We have a Saturday night service and a Sunday morning service. Saturday night service, I drive up, and there's this big, beautiful, beautiful uh, cathedral. I mean, brick, stained glass windows, and they're like, yeah, we're not having church over there. We're having it over here in the shed. I'm like, well, what's that for? No, no, it's just whatever. So we have this church in this low ceiling, this really kind of shady place. There's a huge stage. There's two piano players. There's seven singers. There's literally four guys playing guitars, and they sang 15 songs. I counted. And it was awful. They were doing all the modern, like, oh, and she's, and the lead singer was doing these hand motions. Over the mountains and the sea, your river runs with love for me, so I will open up my heart. And I'm like, I was in amazement. Like, I went back to the camera guy. I'm like, do you record these? And he says, yeah. Can I have a copy? I could put on YouTube, make a million dollars, but I didn't do it. I, 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 I restrained myself. And so, you know, and so I was like, that was, that was weird. What's going on here? And so we go Sunday morning service and the guys tell me, okay, we're not going in that building. We're going in the nice building today. I was like, okay. So we go into the nice building. There's this, this lady in the organ. She's wearing robes and, and, I, and she looks familiar. She's the over the mountains in the sea girl from last night. And there's seven choir members all in robes up there with their hymnals ready to sing. And I'm like, those were the singers from last night. And the pastor's got these robes on. And I mean, they're all swaying and stuff. And they're opening like to a hymn. And, and, and it was amazing. It was awesome. And, and so after, after church, I talked to the pastor. I said, so, so let me get this straight. Like on Saturday nights, you have that wonderful service that you had. And then on Sunday mornings, you have this service. What's the, what's the deal? He said, well, Saturday nights, we're trying something new, trying to reach out to the young people. I said, dude, like young people or old people, they don't like that. Like, I don't know what that was, but seriously, you need to stick to Sunday morning because that was awesome. I mean, it was old hymns, it was, it was, but it was awesome. I don't think, I don't think a dead church can be determined by their liturg liturgy, their, their tradition. Because I've been in some churches where they're singing, where they're singing the old rugged cross, and I feel the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not Bethel. It was written uh, 200 years before Bethel was even born. But they're singing, on a hill far away, 
stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Deeper, help me out from the back. Till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown and sometimes that just feels so anointed so much more than than like than like you know i'm coming back to the heart of worship okay but you know like sometimes sometimes it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what the liturgy is i've seen i've seen god just work regardless of the liturgy regardless of the talent I've seen God work with some people can't even preachers can't even sing and God God I, I don't know where I've seen that but 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 God God moves in spite of that like God just comes in he just settles in so so a dead church has got to be something different than the style of your singing it's got to be something different than the volume or the level of spit that comes out of your sermons it's to be something different than just some kind of style or some kind of clothes that you wear you know you you try to dress hip try to be hipster uh, or, or, or whatever it's got to be something bigger than that it's got to be something different more eternal deeper and that's why when I read this passage I was like Jesus what is a dead church because honestly I've been told all sorts of things and it can't be all those because they're kind of some of them are contradicting each other I, I, I would just love to visit Sardis so that I could know what a dead church looks like I love to be a pastor at Sardis so that I can know what a dead church looks like. I mean, you know, what not to do. <laughs> but, but, but Jesus actually gives us some clues. And I want to I jump into the actual context of what Jesus is saying. If we go back to the passage right there, yeah, right there in the beginning, he says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. I haven't found your works perfect. And then in verse 3, he gives them a very strong clue about the way he sees them. And it doesn't make sense to us because we're not from Sardis. But Jesus says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard and hold fast uh, and repent. Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Go on, go on to the next verse. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. The words, I will come upon you as a thief, is almost a direct quote from one of their historians, their main historians. You see, he's, 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 he's calling back to a time in their history, the city of Sardis, in, uh, where, where, they, where they were attacked and they were, they were overcome by an enemy. It was 549 BC. Cyrus was, was the king of Persia. He was trouncing all around the Middle East. I mean, he was kicking butt and taking names. He was, he was defeating everyone. He's a brilliant uh, warrior. He even defeated the Jews. He's a brilliant warrior, Cyrus, and he's a brutal, a brutal uh, uh, strategist. 
And so, and so the king of Lydia, where the, the, cap, the capital of Lydia was Sardis at that time, the king of Lydia uh, went out to face Cyrus. The king's name was Croesus. Croesus, king of Lydia, got his armies together and went out to face Cyrus because he knew Cyrus was coming. Well, he lost horribly. He escaped with his life and a few of his men. He came back to Sardis, and he's quoted as saying, well, at least we will be safe in Sardis. They were so certain that they were going to be safe. They were so absolutely sure. And you say, well, how can you be so sure? Well, let me, let me just show you a picture of, 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 of what modern-day ancient um, Sardis looked like. Uh, you see that little, little building up there. Well, that is, this is one side of Sardis. This is one, one, one coast of Sardis. Sardis was surrounded on three sides by cliffs like this, 1,000 feet. Some say uh, back in the day it was more like 1,500 feet cliffs, a drop-off on three sides. So Sardis was almost virtually unapproachable. You could not approach Sardis except through the front door. And, 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 and Cyrus came to Sardis and Cyrus said, we're not going to win this battle if we just walk through the front door because there's this almost narrow piece of land that connects Sardis with the rest of the countryside. And, and if we march right along there, they know exactly where we're coming. We can't just walk in the front door, but all around the sides of Sardis, there were steep, steep cliffs, massive precipice. No one had ever scaled the cliffs. And Cyrus um, turned to his men and he said, I'm going to give a huge reward to anybody who can climb that wall. And 14 days, the, the crew gathered around Sardis and watched and tried to figure out a way to scale the cliff. One day, uh, there was a young guy, uh, let's see, his name was Hierodes, and Hierodes, I'm probably slaughtering that, but he was observing uh, one of the Lydian soldiers dropped his helmet off the side of the cliff, and the Lydian soldier kind of scurried down, I like the word scurry, kind of scurried down the, the side of the mountain, and, and Hierodes was noticing the steps that he was taking, and so the Lydian soldier got his helmet, climbed back up the side of the mountain this particular way, and Hierodes went back that night and figured out that there were certain foot holds in, in different ways that you could actually climb it. So he talked to Cyrus and Cyrus put together a small band of, of warriors and they said, okay, in the middle of the night, you guys are going to scale that cliff. And so Hierodes and his band, they scale the cliff. They come up on top on, onto flat land and to their amazement, there are no guards in sight. There are no soldiers. There are no watchmen. There are no watchdogs. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing except the city of Sardis asleep. Now, if you could pan out, you go to the front of Sardis, where everyone was expecting the battle to take place. Oh, man, the soldiers were ready. They had flames. They had torches. They, their, their artillery was ready. The, the, I mean, they were keeping watch overnight. They weren't going to be caught off guard. <laughs> Except they forgot to watch the back door. Well, actually, they thought no one's going to come that way, so why bother? We're secure. We're safe. There's no way anything could happen to us from there. And so from there... Hierodes and his group killed a whole bunch of the Sardinians in their sleep. They were literally sleeping their way to death. And Jesus said, unless you watch, unless you watch, the word watch means to wake up. Unless you wake up, unless you get up. Don't you hate it like when you go to bed and like you, you, you get all ready and then you lay down and then you have the thought, did I lock the back door 
uh, the crooks won't think to go there. I mean, you know, it's fine. I really don't remember. You have to get up and check. Don't you hate that? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, is saying get up. Like, like, no, seriously, you need, you need to check. You need to check the back door. You need to check it because it's, it's, it's a very serious thing. And, and, and Jesus is, is quoting because the historians, the, the Sardis historians said that Cyrus took uh, Sardis like a thief. He came upon it like a thief. They weren't ready for it. They weren't expecting it. And he took it. And so the first thing I think that really does qualify as a dead church or a dead Christian or a dead person is you don't think you can die. You imagine yourself to be safe. You imagine yourself to be completely uh, secure. You, you, you basically believe that there's no way that, that it could happen to you. There's no way that that could happen to you. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be watchful. I want you to wake up because it can happen to you. It can happen. It can happen to, to any one of us. It can happen to any church. It can happen to any organization, any institution, any marriage. Any, there's, there's, you, you, have to, you have to wake up sometimes. You have to be intentional about the way that you're living. You have, to, you have to get out of bed. You have to get out of bed. Everybody watching online, I'm talking to you. Get out of bed. Jesus loves you. Um, and, and, and the rest of you, I'm talking to you, wake up, stop sleeping in church. You know what I'm saying? Like, like wake up. Like sometimes you have to stir yourself up in order to rouse yourself out of a, a place of complacency. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying you are dead, but, 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 but there's still hope. Otherwise, I won't be writing to you. I want you to recognize the danger that you're in. And secondly, I want you to focus not just on the front door. This is what dead churches do. Dead churches focus on the front. It's like, it's like we focus on the curb appeal. You know what I'm saying? We focus on the curb appeal. We focus on, on, on those people who are driving by. And I'm not, I'm not even just talking about a building of a church. I'm talking about the humans within the church, the people. We focus on people who drive by our life. And we want to make sure that we impress them. We want to make sure that we look good to them. And so we put all of our energy, all of our money into our curb appeal, right? The front of the house. We got manicured lawns. We got, you know, we got flowers growing in the flower beds, beautiful shutters, this beautiful house. But if you were to open the door, you, you, would, you would fall through because you realize that the foundation isn't even finished yet. There aren't any studs that separate the walls. There's no electrical run and your roof is leaking. And, it's, and, it's, and it looks good from the outside, but you haven't even checked the back. You haven't even noticed that, that there's nothing in the back. There's no, there's no substance. There's no, there's no house to your curb appeal. You got a curb appeal, but you don't have any house. You, know, you post wonderful things on Facebook, but you don't have any house. Your Snapchat looks real good and your Instagram looks really good. Your highlight reel looks like you have a great marriage, but you don't have any house. And so you, so you, because you've been putting all your emphasis, this is what Sardis did. They put all of their soldiers, all of their money, all of their focus on the front. And that is what a dead person looks like. A dead person, a dead Christian, a dead church is not one that's not doing anything. It's one that is only focusing on one area of their life says, I'll make sure this is good. I'll make sure that's on top of it. I'll make sure that's okay. I'll make sure that we're, that we're doing good right here. And it's the front. It's the part everybody sees. You focus, your focus is on the front. Your focus is on, is on, is, is, is on. The problem with that is when your focus is on the front, number one, you're unaware of the decay that's happening behind you. You're unaware of the things that are dying behind you. 
You're unaware of the things that are happening in your family. You're unaware because the, 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 the Herodias, he attacked the families, the homes. Because that's what was right there on the edge. There were no soldiers to defend the homes. And you're unaware of what's happening and eroding and dying in your very home because you're so focused on how other people see you. So first of all, there's great loss in your backyard. There's great loss in your living room. There's great loss in the, the family aspect of your life. But there's also, there's all, you also become a slave to what other people think about your front. Because you're putting all your energy into that front. You're putting all of your money into the curb appeal. And, 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 and whenever people compliment you on your curb appeal, it just takes you to new levels of, of inspiration. And you're like, ah, oh, they like the, the shutters. Oh, yeah, they like the, they like the, 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 the metal roof there. They love the, they love the color of the house. They like the, they like the petulias. And, yeah, and so their, their compliments lift you up. But if someone's compliments can lift you up, then their criticism can tear you down. And that's the great danger, that you would be so, so in love, so in need of other people's compliments and other people's affirmation that whenever you don't get it, that whenever somebody says, boy, I really don't like the color of those shutters because they really don't match the petulias, you start apologizing for your, for, 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 for your curb appeal because really it's all for other people. It's all for other people. It's all for what they think. It's all for what their opinion is. And whenever someone else's opinion of what you should do affects your opinion of what you should do, you know you're focusing too much on your front. I uh, uh, pastored in, in a promised land, San Marcos, for six and a half years. There was, there was a couple there. Uh, they were... Um, they, they, they always, they were the one couple that loved my preaching. And so I would always, no, just kidding. I would always talk to them though. And they would always be like, oh yeah, I love your preaching, blah, blah, blah. And when I talked to them, they were all, they were all tattooed up. Like they were a couple, they had nose rings and just my kind of people. You know what I'm saying? Like, like they were like, I don't know if they were from Austin, but they were in San Marcos. I don't know how that happened, but um, they were just my kind of people. I always liked hanging out with them. And uh, um, for, for a while they, they, they started missing church, or at least I didn't see them. Now there are 800 people there um, every Sunday. So I'd start asking them, have you seen so-and-so? Have you seen so-and-so? And so I was kind of looking out for them. And then about two months later, I see them, I see them walking in from the parking lot. It was a Wednesday night Bible study. And I see them walking in from the parking lot. So I just go out, man. Like I, I open the door and I say, hey, so good to see you. Huh? Where have you guys been? And so, you know, I give her the, the, the Texas side hug. Like that's what, that's, 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 what, that's what you do, the Texas side hug. Unless you're hugging Ron, then it's, then it's full on. But, but most, you know, most of the time it's just kind of the Texas side hug. And then, and then and this is the middle of July. You know, he's standing there and uh, he had this, this, like, this like little white tank top and all his tattoos and things and so I, I hold out my hand to him and he just kind of stands back and just kind of like like snarls at my hand you know I was like huh he's like aren't you gonna give me a hug <laughs> and uh I said nope I don't know if you're wearing deodorant, dude, like for real. I mean, this is July out here. You got the tank top. No, I'm not giving you a hug. And uh, I, I said, no, I didn't, I didn't go through all that. I was just thinking that. Uh, I said, no, no, I'm not going to give you a hug. I'll give you a handshake, though. And he just kind of like looked at me. So he, he was not happy with the handshake. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll get the door for you, right? Let me open the door and just kind of help you get into the church, and God bless you. And um, because, because it's amazing, like he, like, he, like he drove into the parking lot expecting a hug from Harry. And Harry didn't offer him a hug. Harry offered him a handshake. And he, and, he, and he thought the handshake was worthless, pointless. Just a handshake? Where's my hug? You know? And it's like... <laughs> 
<laughs> like, dude, I'm your pastor, not your BFF. I'm not just going to like, come on, man. Like, what are you talking about? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just here to shake your hand, welcome you to church. And, uh, you know, but, but people have these expectations. People always transfer their expectations of what they think they would have done in that given situation. And they'll expect you to do exactly that. And it's true. I could have been, you know, very Texan and just apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you wanted a hug. Here, let me give you a hug. But I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to feed into his front door. I didn't want to feed into his obsession with the front. I didn't want to feed into the idea that whatever I expect of people is really what I deserve. Because people who are focused on their front door will always criticize your front door. People who are focused on the front of their life will always criticize the front of your life. And honestly, that's because they don't even understand what it's like to actually have a house. Because they have all their time to think about their front the front door, the curb appeal. And they get out their little, their little magnifying glass, right? And they make sure every little bit is trimmed on the, on the, on, on the shutters and every little bit, every, oh, oh, there's one weed right there. There's a weed right there. Do you know there's a weed right there? Did you know there's, yeah, I got kids. There's a weed there, okay, dude? I'm sorry, I got kids. I don't have time to pick weeds all day. But they, but they, don't, they, they, don't, they don't worry about the house. They don't worry about their kids. They don't worry about their future. They're so focused on their front door that they whip out their magnifying glass when they start looking at yours. And if you allow their criticism to tell you what you ought to be doing, instead of seeking Jesus for what you ought to be doing, you will also focus all of your energy on the front. Jesus said of the Pharisees, he called them hypocrites because he said, he said they wash the outside of the cup, but they don't wash the inside. And I don't think that's because the Pharisees were evil, awful people, you know, like just, oh, I just, I'm deceiving everybody. <laughs> that's not really what the Pharisees were doing. They were just so busy. If you take every single criticism into your life and think that is an assignment for you to work on, you will be so busy cleaning the outside of the cup. You'll never have literally never have time of the day to get to the inside. And before long, you'll think the inside doesn't really matter because nobody ever criticizes the inside of the but the problem is, you get a clean cup, but you have no water. You have no nourishment. You have no life. You die of thirst cleaning the outside of the cup because people say, oh, well, there's this little this spot right there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me, let me get that. Oh, there's a spot over there. Oh, yeah, let me, let me, let me get that. At some point, at some point, you have to back away from the front of the enemy lines and you have to look around and, and you have to realize that, 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 that the thing that God is doing in your life, it's not a, it's not a 90 degree healing. It's not even a 180-degree healing. God wants to do a 360-degree healing in your life. I mean, every aspect, every corner, every closet. God's not just concerned about the front door. He's concerned about the attic. He's concerned about the walls. He's concerned about the living room. He's concerned about every single area of your life. What Sardis, I just, I, in my mind, I just, I, I just see Jesus calling out to Sardis saying, look, you got men, you got torches. Start spreading them around. Don't focus all your energy on one area. Start walking. Walking around the circumference of Sardis because you never know, you never know what part is going to start dying unless you're defending it, unless you're sowing into it. He says, wake up, stop sleeping, assuming that because you got that bit covered that you're safe. Hypocrisy is one of like the, 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 the worst things in the world to our generation, right? Like people are like, oh, I'll do that, but I'll never be a hypocrite. Oh, Congratulations. You get, a, you get a special star when you get to heaven. Not a hypocrite. 
uh, oh, I'm sorry, you're not going to heaven. You're going, you're going because, because if, 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 you think, if you think that the only thing you need to not do is be a hypocrite, you've, you've missed it. And so, and so but, but, but our generation hates hypocrisy. We, we hate it because, because honestly, hypocrisy looks one way from the outside, but it feels one way from the inside. So you can hate hypocrisy and yet be a hypocrite at the same time. Because you hate what you see as hypocrisy because it looks so awful from the outside. But once it's on the inside, it's not really that you're trying to pretend or trick everybody. It's just that all of your emphasis is on the front end of your life. And you don't have time to work on your relationship with God. You don't have time to talk to God every day. You don't have time to, 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 to lead your kids in Bible study. You don't have time to pass on the traditions to your children. You don't have time because you're so busy dealing with the front end of your life. You focus on the front and you, and, and you disregard the back. And, and, and the good news to this church is that Jesus says, I'm coming to you. This is the only church actually that Jesus books his reservation for a visit. He says, he says if you don't repent, if you don't repent, I will come upon you as a thief. And sort of the implication is, if you do repent, I will come upon you um, not as a thief and not in an hour that you don't know. He says, if you don't repent, I will come at you in an hour that you don't know. But the implication is that if you do repent, if you do change your mind, that I will come upon you in an hour that you know. Why? Because you'll be watching for me. And this is the key. If you find yourself with some hypocrisy in your life, if you find yourself with some hypocrisy even in your schedule, this is the key. You have to stop watching for other people and, stop and start watching for Jesus. He says, you've been watching for the opinions of others. You've been watching for the attack of others. You've been watching for what other people are doing. I want you now to start circling around your life and start watching for me because Jesus will not show up at the front door of your life. Jesus is not interested in making you look better. Jesus is not interested in improving your reputation. Jesus is interested in the stuff that you are leaving behind, the stuff that you are neglecting, the stuff that is in the darkness. That's where Jesus will show up. And so what do you have to do? You have to turn around, stop focusing on what people are thinking and start wondering, what does God think about this part of my mind? What, is, what about, what, what about that, that, long, that long root of bitterness that I've kept in my heart for years and years and years? I've almost forgot about that, but it sort of comes up every now and then. What about, what about that, that pain and that hurt that was in my past? What about the unforgiveness? I don't forgive myself for what I, what about the shame that I had? That's, those are the places that Jesus shows up. <laughs> He's not, he's not stopped by the, by, by the precipice. He's not stopped by the climb. He's not stopped by the cliff. He's coming to visit. And this, is, and this is good news for this church in Sardis because they're dead. And so they need somebody who can resurrect the dead. They need somebody who can raise the dead. They need somebody who can bring them back. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So I want you to live. Somebody say live. I want you to live as children of light for the fruit of light consists in goodness, righteousness, and truth. And I want you to find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And he's not talking about go around to other people and expose what they're doing wrong. He explains here in just a minute, he says it's shameful even to mention what the disobedient are doing in secret, but everything that is exposed by the light 
becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. He's not saying go around and expose everybody else's stuff. He's saying, allow the Holy Spirit to expose your stuff. If you're feeling dead, if you're feeling dead spiritually, if you're feeling dead in any area of your life, if you feel uh, a slave to other people's opinions, the first thing you need to do is not just convince yourself that their opinions don't matter because, I mean, that is true. But the greater thing is that someone's opinion does matter and his name is Jesus. And Jesus wants to bring these things that are in the dark, he wants to bring them into the light. Not so that he can expose them and make them visible so that you feel bad about yourself, but look what it says. It says, everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Everything that is illuminated becomes light. Everything that is illuminated becomes a light. It reflects the light that it is illuminated with. God will take some of your darkest places and turn them into the brightest lights of your story. Everything illuminated becomes a light. Everything that he wants to illuminate will become a light. You say, well, I, don't, I think I'm too broken. I don't know. God, God can't use me when I'm broken. No, no, no. Light can shine off of broken things just like it can shine off of whole things. It's not about your brokenness or your lack of brokenness. It's not about what was in the dark and not as in the dark. Whatever comes out of the dark will become a light. God will use whatever was in the dark that was dying in order to be a light to shine. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing about everybody's highlight reel. I'm tired of seeing fake pictures posted on, 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 on social media. That doesn't help anybody. You got it all together? Oh, congratulations. That doesn't help anybody. The world does not need more Christians who pretend that they have it all together. The world needs some people that says, I was lost, but now I am found. I was broken, but his light is shining on my brokenness and it's illuminating my brokenness. And it is embarrassing for me, but it's helpful for you because you're not alone in your struggle. Because while I see your highlight reel, I know what's dying in my backyard. I know what's in my life, and I know that it doesn't look like that. And so the more we can be honest and open and real with people and allow our brokenness to come into the light, the more our brokenness becomes a light. Everything illuminated becomes a light. Everything. That's why God wants to bring it out. That's why God wants to bring it out. That's why he wants to expose it. It's not to make you feel bad. It's not to make you look dumb. He wants to expose it so that it can become a light to other people who are going through the same thing. Going, dealing with the same thing. And they think they are alone in their struggle because nobody is willing to be open and honest about the fact that God's light doesn't just shine on wholeness. It shines on brokenness. It shines on shatteredness. It shines on things that were completely obliterated. It shines on, on, it, it, it shines on divorce. It shines on adultery. It shines on, 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 on murder and anger and hatred. It shines on, on abuse. It shines on a history that is not, that is not the kind of history that you would even want to have. Sometimes it's not that you chose it, but, but, God, but God led you through it so that it could be a light to other people. And, 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 and he wants to bring it into the light. He, he says, That's, this, is why he is, this is why it is said. This is why it is said. Wake up, you sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. This is why the Holy Spirit is saying that because he wants to use what you've been holding in the darkness to be a light to other people. And this is, by the way, one of the issues with dead churches and dead people is they forget their purpose. 
they forget their purpose. Churches have a bit of a cycle, historically. They start off being people-oriented, right? You start a church to reach people. City Chapel started almost two years ago to reach people. You become people-oriented. You want to serve people. People are worth it. People, people deserve the love of God. We want to show people. We want to reach out to people. because They start off people-oriented, and, and, and if they're not careful, they become pulpit-oriented. Pulpit, that's what I'm on right here, is preacher-oriented. It's like, well, I'm not really ready to reach people, but if I just get them like, to church where they can hear Pastor Harry, then God will fix everything. But I personally, I'm not really that interested in, in reaching people. Uh, I, I'm happy that we still have a people-driven and a people-oriented ministry even after two years. That we still have a people, that we still had, we had five bags of coats <laughs> donated for our coat drive. Why? Because people are worth it. We have, we have, what, 12 kids in our Keep Kids Fed program every single weekend that you all bring food for because we're still about people. Because we still love people. Because we still want to reach out to people. And we're having a Christmas Eve service here in a, here in a couple of weeks right here in this building and putting door hangers out on this neighborhood. If you want to help us put door hangers out, come see me. We're putting door hangers out because we still care about people. Because, because the worst thing you can do is forget about people and start focusing on preaching or, or a pulpit. And then it just becomes about Sunday. And then it just becomes about people gathering, listening to something and going home. They become pulpit oriented. And then, and then if they're not careful, they become property oriented. And there's nothing wrong with property. I'm, I'm always watching out myself for a property that we could buy. But, but whenever you start getting assets, you start getting tied down. This is true even in your personal life. You can, you can become property oriented don't want to lose what you have and so you tell little kids they can't run in the sanctuary the sanctuary was made for kids but for some reason we tell them they can't run because oh that's disrespectful and oh you can't bring coffee into the house of God when 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 it's not the house of God there's the house of God is not made by hands the human hands the house of God is you and me we are the house of God we are the temple of God the, house of, the, the people are not drinking Starbucks in the house of God. The house of God is drinking Starbucks. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you might have to think about that for a little while. But, but it's not because it's not, the, it's, not, it's not the house of God. No, it's a building. It's a property. The carpet, you pull it up if it gets stained and you put down new carpet. Or just do ugly blue stuff like this right here. You know, whatever you want to do, it'll work. It's just a building. It's just a property. But, but churches over the, over the centuries have become property oriented. And now we want to protect our assets. And a friend of mine's a pastor. And, and, and uh, this, 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 uh, two weeks ago, they always have a Christmas tree in the one particular place up front. He wanted to move it to the back. And so the lady who was the Christmas designer said that she couldn't, she couldn't contribute this year because and they had to have a huge meeting like 50 people showed up to talk about why they wanted the Christmas tree in the front instead of in the back I said dude if I had people at City Chapel I'd just slap them like they come to me that's that's kind of how that would go you know I don't think we should have a tell me what you think you know what I mean I mean come on man that's ridiculous it's a tree nobody cares but no no people get really really weird about their stuff you're people, I'm people, we get weird and protective about it. Our stuff, hold on to our stuff, become property oriented. And it's not very long until a church becomes power oriented. And everyone's wondering what their position is. Well, so-and-so got to be in charge. And yeah, I don't see why I never get asked. And that's the power oriented. 
And you look at the history. I actually had a whole sli- a bunch of slides to show you the history of the Roman Catholic Church, but this is exactly where they went. And, and, and century after century, they're, 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 they're power-oriented. And many of the rules in the Roman Catholic Church was de- were designed to consolidate power. For instance, in 1070 AD, they decided that all, all priests had to be celibate. Interesting, a thousand years, priests could not be celibate and they were considered holy. But after 1070 AD, the Pope said all priests have to be celibate. Why would he say that? It consolidates power. Because if you don't have a real marriage, then you don't have a legitimate heir, then your property and your assets go back to the church. It wasn't about holiness. It's about keeping power in the church. Because every, and the next step, which the Roman Catholic Church did, they became political. They become political, politically driven. Isn't it funny? You go from being people driven all the way to being politically driven, which is where you're looking for votes. You go from saying, I'm here to serve you, to who's here to serve me? In the the entrance, you can slide all the way from, I'm here to reach the community, to, hey, who's reaching out to me? You go from from people driven to, 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 to looking for votes. You go from building a house to just settling for curb appeal. And this is, this is the progress of death. This is the road to death. This is the road. And, and how you can finish, how you can help this is Jesus says, I want you. He says, your works are not complete. If we could go back to Revelation 3, Jesus said, your works are not complete. It doesn't mean that they're not perfect in the sense of, well, you've been messing up. They're not perfect in the sense that they're not complete. You haven't gone full circle. You haven't looked at all the aspects of your life. Now you got, you got part of it. You got part of your life, right? You got, you got part of it. Look at what he says. He says. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain for I have not found your works to be perfect before God. Verse three, remember how you have received and heard. Two things. He says, now I want you to hold fast and repent. The word receive means to receive something. You get something. The word heard means you hear something. The word hold fast is kind of weird. It actually means to own something. And the word repent means to change your mind. So really what he's saying, he's saying it's one thing to have something. It's another thing to own it. It's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to know it. Have it, own it, hear it, know it. Have it, own it, hear it, know it. You got your circle. You have it, now you need to own it. You, you heard it, now you need to know it. You've been, you've been, you've been focusing on this side. I, I have it, I have it, but your circle hasn't finished. You got to have it, and then you got to own it. You got to hear it, yeah, but then you have to know it. This is, this is where the power of God can come full circle in your life. This is where God can actually make changes in your life. This is where you're not just focused on the front and dying on the inside. You got to have it, but then you also have to own it. You have to hear it, but you also have to know it. If, 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 if I were to, who would, who would like to have my iPad? Ashlyn, there you go. I give my iPad to Ashlyn. 
uh, it's got my sermon notes in it, so I'm going to go for another 30 minutes because I forget where I'm at, and it's all good. But um, no, just kidding. So I, I, I give my iPad to Ashlyn. Ashlyn takes my iPad home. It's my iPad, right? It's, it's logged into my Facebook account. It's logged into the church Facebook account. It's, it's logged into all my email accounts. It's got my sermon notes from the past couple years on there. It's got all our family pictures on there. Uh, it's got my diary, my verbal diary that I, that I keep track. It's, it's me. It's mine. But I've given it to Ashlyn. Ashlyn's going to take it home. She's going to have it. And so she, she, she walks in, and Henry says, oh, hey, where'd, where'd you get the iPad? Oh, well, this is this Pastor Harry's. He gave it to me. So in that moment, she just, she just has it. She just has it. But she hasn't owned it. Because it's still connected to my Facebook account. It's still connected. It's got all my family pictures in there, which don't look at those pictures. Um, it's still got all, the, all my life. It's got my life in her hands, has nothing to do with her, nothing to do with her emails, nothing to do with her life. It's just my life in her hands. And this is, what, this, 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 this is what it means to simply have it, right? Like you receive salvation. God gives you the gift of salvation. You, you, you have it, right? I have Jesus' salvation that he gave for me. Oh, this is so awesome. I have his salvation. I have his peace, right? And it runs out. It comes on Sunday and it runs out by about Monday afternoon. But I have his peace and I need to get back in church on Sunday to get it again. You know what I'm saying? I, cause, cause, because it's not my peace. It's his peace. I have it. I'm borrowing it for a minute. I'm holding it for a minute. I have it. And if you don't if you don't actually own, if you don't actually own what you have, you never really experience the power of it. And so Ashlyn can hold on to my iPad, but until she logs into my Facebook and logs me out and logs herself in, until she deletes all of my pictures and puts her own family in there, until she gets rid of my emails and gets her emails, it's not going to be applicable to her life. She hasn't owned it. You can have it, but you've got to own it can have the peace of God and it can last you for a day or two, but you got to own it. You got to, you got to, you got to make it applicable to your life. You got to log in your Facebook account. You got to, you got to put Jesus in the center of your life so that he, so that he affects your attitude. Other people don't affect your attitude. You have a choice to own it. You have a choice to, to choose your attitude toward other people that regardless of how you are treated, you can own the peace of God. You can own the joy of the Holy Spirit. You can, you can own the goodness, right? Patience. You can own kindness and gentleness and self-control. You can own it. It can be yours. Not because some pastor told you that, hey, you ought to be joyful this week and yeah I'm a little bit joyful but no like on Monday and Tuesday Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday and Sunday it's not it's not Harry's uh, peace that he's handing you it's not God's salvation it's your salvation it's yours you own it it's connected to what's important to me it's 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 interwoven with my life you gotta have it but you also gotta own it you gotta you gotta hear it but you also have to know it All right Jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth will set you. He didn't say you shall hear the truth. A lot of times preachers get that confused. And so we just tell people the truth all the time. And we think, oh, freedom's just going to happen if I tell them the truth. No, not you shall hear the truth. You shall know the truth. You shall know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. When you know it, you can hear it. You can hear it all your life. You can hear that God's a healer. You can hear that God's, uh, his salvation is complete. You can hear about all of the things and freedom. You can hear about uh, chains being broken. You can hear about it, but until you know it, it's not going to impact your life. You can hear that, well, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for, for he is with me. I heard it. I heard it all my life. How do you actually know it, though? Well, you have to go through the valley of the shadow of death. You have to go through the valley, and in the middle of the valley, you turn and look that he's with you, and that calms your fears. 
So that's why he's bringing you through some stuff so that you don't just hear it, but so that you can know it. But so that you can own it and you can know it. And even when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and, and, and Pastor Harry doesn't text you and, uh, and God forbid, Roe doesn't call you and suddenly you're there all by your little self. No, Jesus is with you in the valley. Would you read the scripture that says, even though I walk through the valley, I will still fear no evil because God is with me. I don't really, I don't really know that. Then you haven't walked it yet. He's letting you walk it so that what you've heard can be put into practice and you will know it. This is how I know God's faithful because I've walked it. This is how I know that God's a comforter because I've needed his comfort. This is how I know that God's a healer because I've needed his healing. This is how I know. This is how I know that God can save people because God saved me. This is how I know that God can deal with a religious Pharisee like myself because God dealt with me. This is how I know that there's hope for every single situation because I have seen God deal with every single thing inside of my heart and my mind and my life. And he always brings healing and he always brings peace and he always brings restoration and he always does above and beyond what I could even ask or think. I know that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him because I've been rewarded when I diligently have sought him. I know, I know that tithing uh, uh, creates a blessing in, 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 uh, even on this earth because I've seen the blessing of God in my life through my tithing. I've seen God come through for me in ways that are supernatural. I know that God is supernatural and above reasoning because I've experienced it. 